welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Simon Carley. And this, Simon, is our final episode of season 10. Who'd have thought it? I know we're into a new year, but the way we do it, it's this is actually the podcast looking at blog posts from December. So we're still audibly in 2023, despite it now being 2024. But season 10, that's a heck of a thing. We've been around a long time, Ian. We've done some good stuff. I know. I was just reminiscing about all the things that have happened in the last decade. Crikey. What a lot's gone on. Anyway, here we are, still getting through it. Emergency medicine is broadly the same, although I think people's departments may be feeling, ah, well, we talk about it every year, don't we? Even more tricky than perhaps they were before. Winter is still here, et cetera, et cetera. But we're hoping to bring a bit of light into your emergency medicine darkness to remind us about what the good stuff is and all the things we can learn and where we can make a difference. But first, Simon, we should send our best wishes to Adrian Boyle, a colleague who I know you work with very closely at the college, who very gallantly and publicly posted his x-ray on Twitter, uh, but did also therefore share with us that he's had a bit of an injury. He's probably laid up in bed. I hope he's catching up on podcasts. Uh, and I'm sure you've had a word with him and uh, I hope he's doing OK. Yeah, I think he's doing all right. That's the word on the street. We try not to bother him too much with um, work and stuff, but no doubt he'll be working on in the background because um, he's he's always busy. But yeah, best wishes to Adrian, and I hope you get better soon. Always been a real supporter of St. Emelins. And of course, he is an alumnus of Southampton University, so he uh, he becomes automatically very special. Simon, let's get on with talking through the blog content from December. There's a lot of journal clubs here to talk through, lots to think about. So let's start off with pre-hospital transfusion decision making. This is one of those things we've talked about a lot, isn't it? How do we decide what the right thing to do is? Turns out it's pretty tricky. It is. And the background behind this, I think, is fascinating. Both, you know, my experience, your experience of actually doing it in practice, but also where the evidence is. I don't know about you, but I find the decision about whether or not to give somebody blood or blood products um, is often quite a tricky one. You know, it's it's not just looking at numbers. It's a whole bunch of things about the trajectory of the patient, the timing, what the injuries might be, all sorts of things. It's really complicated. And this is what we saw in trials like the the refill trial, where Patients were randomised as to whether or not they were going to get blood or not. And then by the time they got to hospital, quite a lot of them, even in the patients who hadn't received a lot of fluid or hadn't received blood, their sort of BP and things had normalised. So it's a really tricky area for us to work out exactly what's going on. There's a really nice paper here in EMJ, which I think you know summarises why I think qualitative studies are quite important. What they've done is they've looked at experts, you know, proper people who've been doing this for a long period of time, and talked to them about how they make decisions about whether or not to give somebody blood. And I love this qualitative approach. It's an interview-based study where they've got together with these people, asked them in a semi-structured fashion, what is it that influences your decision-making? And it's a really good way of finding out the why. So we could do other studies where we could say, do people get blood and what, you know, what did they record at the time? But if you really want to get into the, the nitty-gritty of decision-making and judgment and uncertainty, all of those things which you and I you know, truly believe is the difference between excellence and mediocre in emergency medicine and pre-hospital care, you have to do this kind of study. Really interesting, two air ambulances that they looked at, they got 10 pre-hospital physicians, they're small numbers, that's not unusual in a qualitative study, and they interviewed them. What they did with the data then is they did a, an analysis of it, a thematic analysis, and they looked what it was that the participants felt really made a difference. Three things came out of that that were really influential in their decision-making. The first was that they used something called recognition prime decision-making. Now, recognition prime decision-making comes originally from Gary Klein. And I'm sure, you know, this is, I always say this, everybody knows about Dan Carmen and Thinking Fast and Slow. But if you've read that book, you have to also read Gary Klein's Streetlights and Shadows. Because what Gary Klein did is he looked at expert decision-makers and how they make decisions. 
and this concept of recognition prime decision making. So they can't necessarily describe exactly why they do things, but because they've seen situations before, even if they're very, very complicated, they're able to essentially run you know, simulations in their mind about, well, if this happens and that happens, and then this could balance this out and that could go there. Really complex decisions, but essentially mind modeling the impact of what they do. And those are the sorts of things which actually tell them whether or not to activate the blood process or not. I think that's really interesting. It fits in with such a lot of themes that we talked about on St. Emlyn's. The second one was the difficulty of uncertainty in that a lot of the time, despite what I just said about recognition primed, is that actually it's quite unusual for us to be absolutely certain about what the impact of giving blood is. So they're uncertain about whether or not giving it is going to have the impact that they want to do. And linked to that is that it's an imperfect decision analysis because we don't necessarily get the follow-up of what happens to the patients and what the impact of whether or not we did give blood or not is there. Trials like Refill and other trials of pre-hospital products you know, they have helped us learn a lot about what's going on. We've got SWIFT trial running at the moment, whole blood versus um, pack cells and FFP. They're helping us. But every time we get a new trial, every time we get new information, you also get a bit of uncertainty, which is great, but also terribly frustrating. I thought, it was, I thought it was really interesting and generally worth a read here. So a couple of things. Firstly, shout out to Kent, sorry, Sussex and London Air Ambulance. They're the services have been involved. And it's great to see ostensibly charities participating in the research environment. I did notice that the majority of those 10 were emergency physicians rather than anaesthetists, but let's just say they're all pre-hospital emergency physicians because we're all one happy band pre-hospitally, aren't we, Simon? And uh, the other thing to mention is that if you're interested in the, the how a semi-structured interview is used, then please go back onto the podcast feed. There's an excellent critical appraisal nugget or can all about it led by Rick Body. So a bit more about how that works and how we might use them. It's a nice way to get some evidence. Yeah, and the other really interesting thing I would take away from this is the next stage. So we've got a bit more information now about what people do from various different studies. We've got now got some information about how people are making decisions, experts are making decisions. I suppose the next bit is how do we then get that expertise into people as they're learning. The vast majority of the people doing this were actually years into their experience. The patient next week can't necessarily wait for the emergency physician pre-hospitalist who has had that amount of training. So how do we get that into practice? And those are the challenges for, for educators like us and like for everybody else out there. How do you teach expertise? How do you teach judgment and not just wait for time to you know, take the place of good education? And let's mention as well that although this is based in the pre-hospital environment, there's a lot of echoes in this for us throughout hospital medicine. So the conclusion was pre-hospital decision-making regarding bleeding and transfusion is often complicated by uncertainty. I think you can take out the bit about bleeding and transfusion and take out pre and just say hospital decision making is often complicated by uncertainty. And that's the world we live in. And that makes our life pretty hard. And I think that's why when you're overwhelmed with decisions at the moment in an emergency department, it can feel exhausting. It is also why sometimes you might go to a senior colleague and they go, well, we just do this. And you, you think to yourself, well, how, how, how did you decide that? And actually, if you ask them to unpick their decision making, they may actually struggle to be able to say, well, I, I thought about this, 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 and this. There is something about time and experience and seeing patients that gives you that, dare I call it, gestalt. Well, you can. But I mean, I was just listening to you then, Ian, and that's pretty much what Gary Klein found when he went and started looking at firefighters in the UK, in the US, sorry. He would ask them, you know, what do you do in these circumstances? Give them a complex um, scenario. And he'd go, oh, you just follow the protocol. We go, all right, can we have a look at the protocol? Oh, well, it's not written down. 
You know, you because you kind of know these things, you know, this is just what we do. And it's only when he started really exploring what that meant, because it does mean something that they could do. It. And Gary Klein actually talks about a, a process called shadow boxing. Scott Weingart does this over on the MCRIT site. There are ways to teach this. That's the lesson and the message I want to go away is you can teach expertise in judgment, expertise in difficult judgments and difficult decision making. You just need to have, to have a good old think about how you do it. So if you want to check that paper out, it is in the EMJ, available for all of those of us who are members of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine. But also if you've got any other way of accessing online papers, it's all there. Have a read of the paper. Don't just listen to what we say. Uh, I was listening the other day to uh, something about, well, I heard it on a podcast. Of course, we would always say it's great to hear things on a podcast, but please don't believe everything we say. As uh, Ken Milner, our friend in Canada, would say, just be sceptical and read it for yourself. Next time in another paper, Journal Club article about e-scooters. E-scooters are one of the new things, aren't they? They've sort of taken the place of trampolines in uh, the things that give us work. We've got trampolines and horse riders and motorcyclists, and now e-scooters come along to join the party of things that can give us work in the emergency department. So this is about the injury patterns. These are new forms of transport, aren't they? We're all very used to the injury patterns we see in certain types of motor vehicle or horse riders or whatever it might be. Are e-scooter injury patterns different? What got me going with this paper was we actually audited locally the proportion of patients with severe brain injury who were attended by a pre-hospital service and looked at the mechanism of injury. And I, I was like, a third of these people are off scooters. I'm like, well, you know, that's just not happening a few years ago. So this is a significant change in what we're seeing. There's quite, quite a lot of controversy about e-scooters. I'm not going to get into the politics of it here, but you know they're supposed to be limited to certain speeds. I can tell you now the ones, that are, ones going up and down Oxford Road with um, some unbranded not to be mentioned delivery type things on their back are not limited to the speeds which they should be they're, they're passing me and i'm doing 30 mile an hour there's a lot of modification going out there we see a lot of people who are decent cyclists wearing helmets let's not get into the helmet conversation but you know there are protective measures that are available should they work um but you know are we is it was this just a blip or is there some evidence for it so we found a paper um out in injury prevention which looked at injury patterns. They did a systematic review and then they looked at the TARN database and they compared injuries on the TARN database. So this is the group of patients who've been more seriously injured. I give that caveat. You know, I looked at the injury patterns between those who were on the database who'd come off a scooter versus those who'd come off a bike. And I think that's a reasonable comparison. The same sort of thing, same kind of clothing, same kind of speed, supposedly. And what they found is that there is a significant difference in the injury patterns in that the scooters give you more head injuries, they give me more limb injuries like head um, and legs. Those are your limbs. Fewer proportionally torso injuries. But the big worry here, of course, is the head injury. You know, most people will be able to fix their legs and fix their arm injuries, but head injury can be lifelong um, morbidity and mortality. It chimes with what we're seeing in our, our clinical practice as well. I'm not sure if it's something you've noticed in your practice down south. Well, we have slightly less availability of those, you know, pick up a scooter in town, ride around. There is a, a, a scheme, I think, in Southampton where you can do that. And so they do exist. I haven't seen lots and lots of these. And often the, the patients do come in a little bit, dare I say, embarrassed. If they're not severely injured and they're able to talk to you and, and they're not teenagers, they're a bit older uh, and they sort of say, well, I came off my scooter. Uh, there's a there's a little bit of emotional injury as well as the physical injury, isn't there? And also our approach to stuff is very different, isn't it? So we're probably picking up more injuries now than we might have done 10 years ago. Not least because, dare I say, everyone gets a scan. That's true. But I mean, these are the ones that are actually being triaged as um, physiologically unwell. So these are the ones getting RSIs, basically. So these are the major head injuries um, in the audit. And then in the paper, yeah, OK, you might be seeing more. But, you know, comparatively, they should be, you know, the comparison between cyclists and um, scooters should be valid there. Now, we're not going to tell people that they can't ride scooters. 
we don't want to tell them they have to wear a helmet because that's you know social media dynamite to say things like that. There is an injury pattern there, and it, it begs the question about whether or not. I mean, I've, I've changed my practice a bit when I see people who come on an e-scooter, so I do talk to them about you know the potential for head injury and things like that. And it's a, you know the bigger question is whether the emergency department is the sort of place where we should be doing public health in- initiatives or injury prevention, injury advice, and it's something I do a lot in paediatrics. I probably do less so in adults, although that's probably a criticism of me rather than the process. I, I mean, we don't really need to go over it here now, but the, I mean, there was the utter social media furore that I created by suggesting that bicycle helmets were good. Uh, and it's that you still remember it says because so, it was in the Olympics in 2012. <laughs> it was over 10 years ago. Uh, to about the same time we started doing the podcast, where I believe I suggested that, yes, people would be better off wearing helmets. And yeah, that's one of those topics that it turns out on the old Twitter, the new X, you just don't mention because you will be in trouble. Uh, I also got in real trouble for mentioning that uh, baby wipes were really helpful around the house. And uh, yeah, don't mention that either. Anyway, let's move on from our e-scooters. Where can people find that paper, Simon, if they want to have a read? Uh, that's in injury prevention. So in injury prevention, again, uh, get this is where you get hold of your university or your hospital library. Try and get yourself an open Athens password. They make all the difference when you're trying to look at papers. Now, Nick did a really interesting article about AI and medicine. Where are you with AI? I mean, I... I haven't quite embraced it yet. I've I've dabbled in chat GPT, but it feels to me like this is a whole new world of change. Well, I think it is and it isn't. So AI as a tool clearly is here and is here to stay. The technology and the, the sort of the learning engines and the language engines like chat GPT are there and they're functioning. And I've used them to do things like job descriptions, you know, sort of routine tasks where you can give it a few um, things. And actually, if you go to life in the fast lane, and there's some links on there. If you look for AI information around medicine, there's some really good stuff on life in the first lane, including how to structure your requests into something like ChatGPT so you get better data out. I think they're very good at helping us with decision support. So I think that's where the, the next part of this story is going to be in that they're able to handle a great deal of data, a great deal of complexity. They're able to do the sums in the background, which we can't do. So we like scoring systems that go yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, because we can't handle really complex you know, logistic regression models. But actually using AI can do, and it can learn. You can get machine learning. We've done that through studies in, the, in Manchester, looking at TMAX scores for developing scores for chest pain evaluation. So we've, we, all, some of this has already been around. I think the big change has happened in the last, say, 12 or 18 months is accessibility to it. Yes, the, the things are changing, but what's happening now is lots more people have got access to this. And so therefore, it's having the impact. I guess it's a bit like when you know the internet started, isn't it? You know, A few people had ideas about it and had access in the early couple of years. And then once it started to get available to everybody, much more uses, loads and loads and loads of benefits are going to come. But also there's going to be some you know, harms and difficulty. And I'm, I'm OK with that. I think it's just a new tool we need to play with. But in terms of complexity, judgment, uncertainty, the things we talked about at the beginning, I can see how this could very much become a tool that will support us with the key emphasis being on support. So clinical decision support. Excellent. I think we're quite a long way off from AI replacing the role of a doctor in making difficult, difficult decisions. I think what we tried to talk about with that pre-hospital transfusion paper was the the human aspect of knowledge plus experience and just putting that all together. And I guess when AI gets to the stage of having all those things, they're basically a sentient being and we all need to be frightened. Uh, so there is still a job for us in that I don't think AI is going to take over what we do. It might help a little bit, 
although I'm not entirely sure the internet has necessarily reduced the number of attendances to the emergency department. It's probably not being used as a, a tool for, for good for us, is it? And AI may well be the same, but I wouldn't worry that there won't be jobs for us in the future. I think there's always going to be an aspect that needs a human brain. It depends on what sort of job you're looking at. So I read a book some time ago now, which I thought was great. It's a recommendation from me, if you like. It's called Homo Deus by Yuval Noah Harari. Um, and in that, he talks about where the future of mankind is going and how the jobs market will go and how, you know, what sort of jobs are going to survive and what, what are going to disappear. So let's, let's take taxis and cars. You know, I can see very soon that technology will be available to replace a number of the functions which are going on with cars and taxis and moving people around, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's insane that we all own cars when we only use them such a small period of the day, et cetera. But for jobs which are particularly relevant to things like medicine, or some of the jobs where we have difficulty, we have the association between decision-making, uncertainty, and also practical skills and complex communication. Those are areas which will probably survive. Radiology, where it's image interpretation, that aspect of radiology, that's going to be a bit more complicated. That's more likely to be taken over. But you're still a long way away from a robot doing your lung biopsy or your liver biopsy. The medicine of all the careers... Um, and clinical, well, clinical, wider than medicine, nursing, paramedicine, all the others, I think is probably more protected than others. And read, read Homodeus, though. It's a really cracking book. You read many books. This, this is why you're a professor of emergency medicine, and I, I don't know, I spend my time playing games on my phone. There's so many things I learned from you, Simon. One is I should spend my time slightly more productively. Our final paper for this month is one that I don't know if it it doesn't immediately shout emergency medicine at me, but uh, it is another paper from you, Simon, about selective aortic arch perfusion. Now, immediately I would have thought, well, why on earth do we need to know about that? What was it that drew you to this? I notice it's from the excellent Scandinavian Journal of Trauma Resuscitation and Emergency Medicine, who are huge supporters of open access papers and evidence and, and support our friends at the recess room. But what? why on earth would you think we should be interested in this? It was around about April last year when I went to uh, one of the RAID conferences, which is the East Anglia Air Ambulance, I hope I've got that right, research and audit group. And they did a one-day conference where they were looking at you know, the future of where we're going with technologies. And we were talking at that um, conference about things like Reboa um, and how you know, the, the UK Reboa study, as we know, we've reviewed on the podcast and on the blog, didn't show any benefit, lots of reasons why that might be. Um, and it's still a technology which might be appropriate in the, the right people, in my humble opinion. But one of the things that they were talking about there is how we improve outcomes in cardiac arrest and the importance of getting decent coronary perfusion whilst you do that. So there was lots of conversations about um, intra-arterial monitoring, about changing the way that we give inotropes, about raising this uh, diastolic blood pressure to a level where you know things like defibrillation are more likely to be successful and sustained, and how that might happen in the future. So one of the ways is 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 Rebola, um, but also actually getting perfusion into the top half of the body so putting a catheter up into the aorta blocking it off and being able to uh, transfuse fluids in as a mechanism for supporting people during trauma and also cardiac arrest is just really interesting there's clearly a lot of work going down this line and i just thought that this which is essentially a first in human cadaver study to show that it's technically feasible was really interesting there's quite a lot of animal work that support this for a quite a long period of time this is so not ready for prime time it's remarkable 
Um, but it's interesting because it makes you think about the physiology, it makes you think about what we're trying to do in cardiac arrest management beyond just going around the ALS cycles, which is sometimes feels futile. So think about what you're doing. This is a way of thinking about it. You can think about it in terms of pressure and perfusion and sustainability of you know a ROSC when we get it. So all of that's very interesting. Always caveated with any of these things when they all look very exciting and very interesting, not for prime time, haven't had the RCT. And let's just think about 99.999% of the world, which don't have the opportunity to even think about getting these at all. But if you're interested in physiology, you're interested in cardiac arrest physiology, and you're interested in trauma physiology, have a look at the paper. These things, it's good to have exciting things to look forward to in emergency medicine and think that there are things that we're going to progress. And there have been loads of things we've talked about on the blog and podcast over the last 10 years, which I don't think we would have imagined when we started doing all this, we'd have been talking about. There are things that we can do to make that difference, the 1%, 2% difference. And actually, I think that really helps keep us engaged, doesn't it? It helps emergency medicine look like it's moving forward. It helps us keep our brains active. It helps the, the specialty itself feel more exciting because I think sometimes it, it can just feel like the same job that you and I started doing as SHOs, let's just say a couple of decades ago. Uh, and to have these new ideas is is something that adds into the picture and, and makes it a bit more, well, a bit more something you want to be involved with. You know, you never know quite where these technologies are going to go. I mean, there was discussion about what happens in other countries around the world where people may have a cardiac arrest and still be able to donate organs because they've essentially been under their regulation declared as brain dead but they can continue the perfusion um, going on for a period of time after brain death and then permit um, retrieval of organs which you know an organ transplantation is such an amazingly fantastic thing for those people who receive it uh, absolutely life-changing these kind of technologies although we might not see them in the things that are most obvious now, sort of you know, exsanguinating pelvic trauma and stuff, these technologies can then lead into other things which are happening around the world. So let's just watch this space, but let's stay interested. Let's just stay interested in what we're doing and let's think about where the physiology takes us and how we can potentially translate that into better survival for our most unwell patients. And if you're a bit more, well, let's say, if you're a bit younger than Simon and I and you fancy looking up history, then just by all means, Google the word mast and resuscitation, and you'll hear about medical anti-shock trousers. There have been all sorts of things we've tried over time. Some have stayed and some have gone, but hopefully this might be something in the future. But maybe this is the mast trouser of the uh, 2020s, or uh, perhaps it's a new thing that we can, can embrace and use more of. Simon, that's December. That's season 10. Next time we will be moving into talking into 2024, despite the fact we're both living in 2024 right now. It's always a bit funny, isn't it? It feels like we're in a bit of a back to the future moment. But here we are in a new year. Thanks again to listening to the St. Eminence podcast. We really do appreciate it. And as ever, if you'd like to get involved, if you'd like to write a blog post, if you'd like to do anything with the team, we're always keen to have you on board. If it's coming to ARCP time and you're lacking that bit, which says, are you involved with research or evidence-based medicine? And you think, well, maybe if I wrote a blog post, perhaps that might be something I could put into my ARCP portfolio and take up to that and, uh, and show that I'm involved. We'd love to hear from you. Just get in contact via the website. And as ever, if you could tell your friends, like, subscribe, and all those things that everyone else tells you to do, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Ian, and thanks for all the effort you're putting into this. I think it's great. It's lovely. I'm enjoying January 2024. The work's tough, but you know the day's getting longer, getting brighter. It'll soon be summertime. It's great. Take care, everyone. Thank you.